Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is our good friend Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also uh, affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, and he uh, and the entire CNA team there are among the finest Russia analysts. And Sam is uh, one of the foremost analysts of unmanned systems in the world, including Russia's capabilities. Sam. Absolute pleasure having you back on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Vargo. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo VRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Sam, it's been uh, an extraordinary weekend, I think, from a Ukrainian uh, perspective. Uh, almost everybody who's been analyzing this war, even after the Ukrainians started their uh, offensive, uh, has been saying, well, you know, this is going to end up as a stalemate. Uh, United States providing more aid, $3 billion uh, at the donor, additional $3 billion for uh, Ukraine, as well as uh, for Eastern European nations. And now all of a sudden we're seeing uh, extraordinary battlefield gains by uh, U- Ukrainians, more than 3,000 square kilometers. That uh, was uh, yesterday's figure. We heard from uh, Sash Tusa uh, of our team on the on the business side of the podcast. He's with uh, agency partners in London, uh, and you know thought that the Ukrainians mounted a brilliant deception operation, uh, convincing the Russians they would attack uh, in one place and attacking uh, elsewhere. From your standpoint and your teams, what's happening now on the battlefield? What are the gains? Are they permanent? Is this a momentum uh, issue? What's what's happening on the ground as far as you guys can tell? Well, it's a good question. I think a lot of data and information is still coming in. uh, But from what we know already, uh, this has indeed been a brilliant Ukrainian tactical move. This offensive really displays the failure of Russian intelligence and reconnaissance forces. The inability to see Ukrainians massing, the inability to see Ukrainians' initial attacks uh, is rather jarring. And I think we'll be reviewing this data for, for many years after you know, afterwards, uh, trying to understand exactly what happened and didn't happen in the Russian military. The fact that Ukrainians were able to advance very quickly points to probably more significant failures within the Russian military than just the lack of intelligence and reconnaissance. There are issues not just of manpower and personnel and equipment and supplies, but also morale. A lot of Russian soldiers simply chose to abandon their vehicles and save their lives and flee uh, rather than stay and fight. It is an interesting problem simply from an objective perspective because Russians have been touting their intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities uh, prior to the war. And we know that the Russians have, in fact, used it rather uh, extensively throughout this war with the help of, for example, unmanned aerial vehicles. But what's interesting in this specific offensive is that Russians could not anticipate Ukrainian forces basically creeping up all, you know, all, all the way to the front. And so many Russian soldiers from the beginning of the war were complaining that they lack a very tactical recon capability, for example, something that would be enabled by very small uh, quadrocopters um, and other commercial drones, which is why they've become so popular on both sides of this conflict um, as something that enables the soldiers to see just a few kilometers out, just to see what's around the forest, just to see what's sort of on the other end of the village. Apparently that capability was absent as the Ukrainians massed for this tactic. 
um, and as, as they massed for this attack. And so this, again, this failure to really anticipate and acknowledge Ukrainian, um, Ukrainian forces as they were preparing for, their, uh, for this massive strike will probably be studied for quite a while. Uh, this, of course, uh, puts Ukrainian forces now in a bit of a situation. We know that the Ukrainian defense minister recently stated on the record that uh, while his forces have been very successful in liberating uh, so much territory, their own supply lines are now overstretched. And the question is, how will the Russian forces be able to reorganize and how will they will be able to counterattack and whether or not they'll be able to put stress on this Ukrainian supply and communication lines that are now stretching across this newly conquered territory. Um, one of, uh, and, and that was actually going to be the next uh, question I was going to ask, right? I mean, the Ukrainian defense minister said, hey, look, you know, fingers crossed we're doing okay. The question is whether we can hold, uh, because I think even they were surprised at the speed with which uh, they uh, managed uh, to move. On the other hand, Russia has turned to North Korea. North Korea is uh, shipping millions of rockets. Uh, we've heard that the North Koreans may also send troops, uh, solving one of Putin's other problems, which is a manpower shortage. Uh, and he's going to meet with Xi Jinping uh, again uh, as the Shanghai group um, gets uh, together. And there's a sense that the Chinese may find different ways to help them. What are the next steps of this? Because Putin now is coming under increasing fire, even from his allies, saying, look, man, this has been an abject disaster. Um, what's, what's the sense on how Russia retaliates? I mean, we've seen some missile strikes uh, all over the country, right? I mean, the normal sort of Russian lash out, um, indiscriminate as, as usual. What are the next steps? What's the shape of this? Does Russia replenish enough of its stocks? Do North Korean troops make a difference? Do the Chinese help? Or, or is this actually, are we seeing how this war is going to go? going forward, which is a very motivated adversary fighting for their land and, you know, an, an adversary that does not have much of esprit de corps and, and actually does not have a lot of capability or as much capability as we thought they did. Well, I can't speak to the North Korean issue. Uh, as far as getting the uh, artillery and other uh, equipment from North Korea, uh, North Korea, China, and a number of other countries are currently using military technology and developing military technology which itself is based on uh, technologies developed in Soviet Union or even supplied by Russia uh, several decades ago. So a lot of these uh, military systems have similar specifications or similar, um, similar qualities that could potentially be used by anyone who is today using legacy Soviet systems. Uh, I can't speak to the uh, North Korean troops going to Ukraine. That, that seems very unbelievable at this point. And obviously, China has been very careful and very cautious in this because uh, China is concerned that its um, involvement that could be seen as, as very direct from the United States would put it um, on a direct economic collision with the United States. And Chinese economy is still very much um, interrelated and interconnected with the U.S. economy and the global economy. And so China is probably keeping that um, on the forefront in any discussions about uh, specific or direct military assistance to Russia. So I can't really kind of go beyond that. Uh, what's next, I think, is uh, Ukraine will have to consolidate the territory. Uh, Ukraine will have to secure its overstretched supply lines, again, as articulated by the defense minister. And uh, what's next is we have to see how Russia responds, uh, what, what its potential counterattack can be, uh, could be, uh, whether they will try to reinforce their positions in the northeast of Ukraine, 
whether they will try to do something in the south of Ukraine. Uh, clearly, this is a very significant debacle. It is now discussed publicly, even in the Russian media channels. One of the biggest alarm bells uh, prior to the invasion were uh, Russian telegram channels that are reporting from the ground in Ukraine. And previously, we discussed how this war is really providing an unprecedented amount of information from these telegram channels, both Russian and Ukrainian, literally uh, minute by minute, hour by hour, as things happen. And so a lot of these telegram channels that have very significant followings, basically in the millions of people have been ringing alarm bells, have been talking about some of the issues encountered by the Russian forces. And now these rather um, influential uh, uh, telegram networks are sort of uh, trying to sort of uh, put the onus on the Russian Ministry of Defense and ask the tough questions. What happened? Why wasn't the advance anticipated? And uh, what could be done next? I do want to mention something else. Uh, this uh, advance in the Northeast is somewhat reminiscent of the Azerbaijani advance against the, um, the Nagorno-Karabakh forces in the 2020 war, when um, Azerbaijanis feigned a, an advance along um, the um, Nagorno-Karabakh Iranian border to the border of Armenia, uh, forcing uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenian forces to try and meet that advance. And then they suddenly turned north and they were able to advance to the Lachin Corridor and basically force the end of the war. So what Ukrainians did is absolutely incredible at this point, but it's not necessarily new in the grand scheme of things. These type of advances have happened before. And as much as, for example, Russian military has been studying the Nagorno-Karabakh war and trying to draw lessons from it, it doesn't look like a lot of these lessons were directly applied on the ground, where Russian military faced very significant issues, issues that have become public over the past six months. I agree with you, right? I mean, a lot of similarities between those two campaigns. Uh, and and thanks for actually putting, uh, putting that in sharp uh, relief. Um, what, do you, what, are you, what are you picking up in terms of what the Russian asks are going to be of the Chinese and its uh, Shanghai dialogue? compatriots uh, at the end of the day, right? I mean, Russia does not want to do a mass mobilization uh, because it's going to be unpopular. Uh, but at the end of the day, Putin is also going to want help uh, from uh, countries that he considers uh, his, his partners. Um, what, what is Russian reporting indicating uh, about what Moscow is going to want from its erstwhile partners? Well, uh, a lot of Russian reporting uh, is, is now getting extensively sanitized. And so even some of the websites and publications that have been uh, sort of providing a lot more detail about Russian military, Russian defense, uh, industry in general before the war are now not really offering as much information. So it's not clear exactly for me at this point what the overall Russian ask of China will be within the Shanghai Cooperation Organization framework. Clearly, Russians are asking for assistance. It's just not clear exactly what it's going to be. And again, uh, analysis could be wrong and our predictions could be wrong. For example, um, as the war began and uh, Russians clearly needed a significant, for example, unmanned aerial capability, I and probably other analysts thought that Russia would turn to China and China would be able to supply their combat UAVs to the Russians. After all, Chinese were uh, supplying them all over the Middle East. And yet, lo and behold, Russia actually turned to Iran and right. may actually be getting these drones very soon. So our own predictions and assumptions about Russian-Chinese relationship and how close that relationship is could, in fact, be proven wrong 
by uh, the conduct and pr- prosecution of this war by the Ukrainians. Uh, and do you think that, you know, if uh, Russia gets more of these unmanned vehicles, gets more of these uh, rockets, that it can dramatically undo uh, the Ukrainian progress that's been made? Well, I don't know about undoing the progress, but uh, one of the biggest um, benefits to having a mid to long range unmanned aerial vehicle is the intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capability, monitoring the development by the adversary that is tens or maybe even hundreds of kilometers out. In other words, being able to see what's actually happening um, without the fear of losing yet another manned aircraft or a helicopter, which has been happening a lot to the Russian forces. And of course, having unmanned combat aerial vehicles with long range means once the, uh, once the adversarial movement systems or targets have been identified, they could be attacked, presumably almost immediately, with the air-to-ground missiles and munitions. So in that sense, it would provide the Russian military with additional capability. So I'm not sure about reversing some of these gains. We'll have to wait and see uh, and actually get a better picture of the full extent of the Russian losses how much equipment they lost, what are the losses amongst the personnel, how are they regrouping and reorganizing, and what can they do to counter attack. So I think uh, the jury's still out on what the Russians can do, but this certainly is bad for the Russian overall morale, and it is a significant psychological blow as well. There are some who are saying, oh, this is the end of Putin. Uh, look, his invasion has been a failure. Um, he's had all of these setbacks, you know, pointing out, for example, to the Moscow City Council saying, hey, uh, you know, Putin, you've got to step down. Even his uh, closest allies are, are bitterly now um, criticizing him. On the other hand, that's a long way to go before somebody like that steps down. Although it's fair to say that in the Russian system, your leader and a couple of days later, you may no longer be the leader, right? Um, the, the, he lives in a shark tank. Uh, even though at this point he is the apex shark, there are other sharks in this tank. Um, um, you know, what, what's the likelihood that, I, I just want to, you know, give you an opportunity to comment on all those who are sort of saying like, oh, you know, the, his end is near and Russia's collapse is sort of imminent at this point. How do you respond to that as somebody who's been a lifelong student uh, of, of Russia? Well, I'm not sure if his end is near. Certainly some of his allies are critical. Some are more public than others. Certainly there's a lot more public sentiment uh, against Russian prosecution of the war and especially in the wake of the Ukrainian advance. Uh, again, I will, I will turn to those Russian telegram channels, which are rather influential. In fact, I think New York Times just did an article about uh, the fact that a lot of these Russian telegram channels have been ringing alarms right up until the Ukrainian advance, and it looks like the MOD ignored it for one reason or another. Putin is still very popular in Russia. Many still view him as someone without an alternative, someone who can, who can hold the country together and someone who can lead Russia sort of into the new century. And even if a growing number of his allies may become critical, it's not clear exactly what they can do. Uh, we in, in Washington, D.C. Um, are discussing uh, a lot the possibilities of someone replacing Putin, for example, but we don't know who that individual could be or even should be in, in, in that regard. So again, it's not clear if this is the end. It's certainly uh, not good for his standing, but even if he loses a significant amount of percentage points of his popularity scale, he's still going to be polling very well across the country. Again, many see him as the only one without real alternative as someone who can keep the Russia together 
and and someone who can save the country. So in that regard, his popularity is probably still ensured for quite a while. Uh, and before we go, uh, Sam, I have to ask you about Army uh, 2022. Unfortunately, uh, because of scheduling reasons uh, and uh, the intervention uh, of a holiday, we didn't get you on t- uh, to be able to talk to us about that. Give us uh, your sense on what sort of the big topics, big issues, and key takeaways were from the Army 2022 show. Well, this was supposed to be a sort of Russia's way to show that it's business as usual. And the war in Ukraine and global sanctions aren't really interfering with its uh, international business, international cooperation, and uh, its arm, arm export business in general. And so there are major announcements that came out of this specific military expo and forum. So number one, the Russian Ministry of Defense officially announced the opening of the Artificial Intelligence Department. And this would be the department that would be curating and leading AI efforts across the MLD. And apparently this department will will also have the funding authority to select and fund certain projects. This was first announced last year, and um, it is finally operational. In parallel with a military AI department, Russian government announced that this month in September, they just opened the uh, National AI Center that would be able to organize and be a centralized authority to Russian civilian artificial intelligence effort across the state, academia, and business. And uh, this is something that many um, Russian developers, uh, many researchers, uh, many companies and organizations were calling for in the wake of the sanctions, in the wake of um, the extreme battering that the Russian high-tech sector took from the sanctions after Russia invaded Ukraine, many called for a Russian government to provide a more centralized approach to the development and funding of artificial intelligence in the country. So it's not clear what the fate of these efforts is going to be, obviously, because the war is still ongoing, the sanctions are still ongoing, but um, Russian government is determined to have a centralized sort of vertical approach to both military and civilian artificial intelligence development. Um, And uh, we'll have to wait and see what the overall success of uh, these efforts is going to be. But again, government is now heavily involved in how certain high-tech aspects of its development, like AI, are going to be conducted. As far as technologies and systems offered, I will just concentrate on a few that were directly influenced by the war in Ukraine. And one of the biggest sort of symbols of the war in Ukraine is a Chinese-made DJI quadrocopter, which is absolutely ever-present on both sides of, um, of, of this war. And a lot of Russian developers are trying to come up with something to replace these Chinese quadrocopters with domestic development. So there was one quadrocopter that was developed specifically for psychological operations, meaning it would be a small quadrocopter dropping a small grenade near Ukrainian positions at nighttime to keep Ukrainian soldiers on edge and essentially uh, keep psychological pressure on them, uh, constantly keeping them in in stress. Uh, Other developments included small quadrocopters that could act as ISR and loading munition elements, uh, quadrocopters that could um, withstand wind and, uh, and extreme weather conditions, uh, unmanned ground vehicles for logistical operations, and some of the other elements that were seen before in previous forums. Uh, Russia displaying its uh, unmanned underwater vehicles, for example, for deep water operations. The big question at the Army 2022 was, what is the extent of Russia's uh, defense and industrial sector's ability to survive the sanctions? and essentially continue filling out the state armaments order 
for the production and delivery of weapons and systems? What is the state of import substitution? How powerful are uh, are the effects of sanctions on Russian civilian and uh, defense high-tech developments? And what is the fate of the uh, essentially workforce development? Um, how are the young people going to be attracted to and kept in the uh, in the defense industrial sector or just in the country in general, what kind of incentives could be offered for the people so that they don't emigrate uh, in large numbers, especially people who have very uh, needed high-tech uh, and ICT skills. So, so this is kind of like an overall overview. Um, 85 international delegations attended. Army 2022 is held across the country. So there are other smaller, they were other smaller exhibits across Russia. Uh, overall, the attendance was about 2 million people, and Russian defense uh, ministry signed contracts with their um, defense industrial enterprises worth um, half a trillion rubles. So again, this was Russia's attempt to telegraph that it's business as usual, that they're not really isolated, that uh, international uh, interest is still very much um, high uh, in Russian technologies and systems. But again, the same Russian telegram channels that I referred to earlier in the podcast were kind of calling for this very strange split screen reality that uh, Army 2022 showcased kind of shiny new uh, systems and weapons that were really absent on the ground in the Russian forces against the Ukrainians. And so a lot of these telegram channels offered a critical view of uh, the fact that this uh, symposium and, and workshop, I'm sorry, the symposium and um, conference was held at a time when the Russian forces were in fact lacking a lot of the technologies and systems that were on display. Of course, the fact that they were on display indicates that they exist in small numbers, especially some of the newer systems. But some of the Russian commentators actually got ahead of the news cycle by saying, look, we're not going to offer anything like brand new and shiny. They're not going to be breakthrough technologies at this conference. They're going to be um, older and modernized systems, which are very much in demand right now in Russia and around the world. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Look forward to having you back on again next week to give us another update. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vago. And now a word from our sponsors, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our coverage of Command and Control. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. Uh, and our coverage of Britain's leading air show was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And joining us today, as he does on most Mondays, is my good friend Byron Callan of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, welcome back to the program, and it's always great to have you on. I always look forward to it, Bago. Uh, indeed. Uh, same uh, same here. Some very thoughtful notes uh, since last uh, we spoke, um, and uh, a couple of them on the Russo-Ukrainian uh, war, uh, as well as a positive case for defense, obviously, uh, and, and you took a look at the week ahead as well. Your, your notes represent a con consensus to agree, right? Last Wednesday, uh, in the wake of the Royal uh, United Services Institute event on the Russo-Ukrainian War, uh, you wrote, look, the core case remains a stalemate. But yep. as we've seen over the weekend, uh, and we just discussed with Sam, we've seen a veritable or virtual Russian collapse. It doesn't mean that that's the case going forward. Russia still has more resources than a country of 44 mil million, indeed a country of far smaller now with millions of people who fled. Russia still has a lot of, car lot of cards to play, but it is a dramatic t change. What's your sense on where we are now, especially uh, after this weekend? 
I'm still cautious on making sweeping generalizations, Vago. I, th I think there's an open question, and this has been the case all along, about what we know and don't know. You know, I think what we don't know, what was the correlation of forces? Um, you know, I, I think it's been fairly apparent that the Russians have had manning issues, that this is not a robust front that they've had across the entire line of contract with the uh, line of contact with Ukrainian forces. And, you know, some of the speculation is this was maybe three to five brigades against, you know, what may have been battalion-sized Russian units. Um, yes, you know, the, the advance is sweeping, uh, you know, 40 kilometers a day type uh, advance, which is, is very respectable from a historic standpoint. Yes, um, there's imagery of captured Russian equipment that a lot of it may have been in depots, which continues to suggest Russian problems with logistics. Um, you know, but I think, is, is this the beginning of the end for the Russian military and the entire collapse? Um, you know, a couple observations. I don't, I wouldn't leap to that conclusion today. Um, you know, the Ukrainians had warned that there there could be a counteroffensive emerging. I don't know where the Russians could get the troops from that, but you know, this this will. I think with any war, you have to look at the two and the back and forth and in, in how operations play out. And you know, is this a decisive operation right now? I don't think so, um, and I don't think you could conclude, you know, that that Russia, this was the knockout blow that suddenly throws, you know, Putin out of power and, and Russia, you know, back to what it was in, in 1991. I think there's also a, a real whole range of questions that I don't see people asking right now, which is, okay, you know, if Putin's out, is that really the best case scenario for Russia? What happens if he's replaced by um, people who kind of have this stab in the back theory that you know, Putin squandered Russian military resources and took a piecemeal approach to Ukraine when he should have gone all in. I mean, so this thing can play out in, in a whole range of different vectors. And that's why I'm reluctant to kind of move off, um, you know, a broader assessment of kind of a strategic stalemate where one side is able to um, execute a decisive victory over the other. Um, one of the questions that I'm reminded of um, is, you know, th this or a couple of weeks ago was uh, the first anniversary of America's uh, shambolic withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Of this was the 21st anniversary of 9-11. And I'm reminded whether it's about Russia's attack on Ukraine, whether it's the stability of the Afghan government in which we had invested more than 20 years or some 20 years, um, we tend to get these things very wrong. And what does that tell us, right, uh, as an analyst, as a theorist, as a strategist, right? How do we manage to get this wrong? And we're going to be talking to other people, you know, how do we manage to get it wrong and how we can get it better or more correct? Because there's a lot riding on our assumptions and our estimates. And so if we're wrong about some of this stuff, I mean, what does that tell us about how right or wrong we well, are, first, whether it's about North Korea or yeah. China? I, I think it's it's human nature on one hand. I mean, you know, my background has obviously been in research and, you know, you, you kind of, how many companies, you know, in the stock market have you seen, you know, the high and mighty fall? They turned out to be, 
you know, instead of a strong fortress, uh, you know, a wooden wall with a lot of termites in it. Look at, you know, for example, General Electric, the problems that have befallen Boeing, um, you know, the internet bubble, you know, what's going on with cryptocurrency. I'm just, I don't think that this is a, a problem that is unique to defense. Um, I think it's just a reminder that, and, and the, you know, kind of intelligence services, but I just think it's a reminder that you really have to keep digging below the surface and, and really look at not just metrics, you know, in, in financial markets, you look at, you know, what are their operating margins? What's their return on invested capital? You know, what's their sales growth? But what you really need to be doing is getting into, well, what's it like in that company? You know, what are the incentives? How, how are, how are workers, trained how do the, how do the promotion services work you know is management willing to accept bad news and make adjustments or are they living in an ivory tower and and think everything is going quite well as the engine room is being flooded um so it's no different in in the world of of military assessment and intelligence um and and maybe the point is you know it does suggest um Certainly, the Russians, you know, have dramatically underperformed, I think, across the board on what they would, you know, how they were initially assessed to perform. But there's a lot of history where that same thing has happened. Uh, you know, 1939, 1941, um, they were a mess and, uh, you know, suffered millions of casualties as a result of that. But they turned it around. And that's why I'm and in the same way, you know, the preliminary assessments, oh, you know, Russia's going to walk into Kiev and this is going to be over in, in a week, um, wildly wrong. Uh, so I, I think, you know, the, the questions now ought to really be, so how is Russia training its forces? You know, what are they doing with their officer corps? You know, it, if that if those are changing, then, yeah, draw the, draw the straight line that um, they're going to be soundly defeated in Ukraine and there may be a, a set of internal time of troubles that emerge in the country. But but I don't know that. And I uh, maybe there are people in the intelligence community who who do have a better beat on that. If they do, it's it's not getting out into the open uh open dialogue about you know what what really should be expected going on here. I will say one thing, at least from a market standpoint, and I don't think markets are clairvoyant, um today you're not seeing um, a sea change in expectations for European defense stocks. They're actually holding up fairly well. And the same with U.S. defense stocks. So despite this, um, you know, very impressive Ukrainian defense performance in the Kharkiv Oblast, it, it's, the markets aren't inter interpreting this as, oh, the war is about to be over and, and Russia will no longer be a military threat and we can all go back to doing what we're doing, um, you know, in, in December 2021. And Vago, you know, one final thought here is you're really not seeing European militaries behave as if this Ukrainian victory is going to eliminate the Russian threat. Um, you know, the Poles talking about spending three, maybe 5% of GDP. They've announced a really impressive modernization program. You know, they're putting putting assets in their military that are really quite advanced. Um, <clears throat> the German decision announcement today that they're going to buy an arrow uh, air defense system from from Israel, you know, that's not to deal with China, that's to deal with Russia. So I don't think, you know, as much as we focus on the here and now, we really ought to be thinking about what does Russia look like in 2025, 26, 27? <clears throat> that's really what's going to be driving defense spending here. And I, I think, you know, even if Russia 
suffers a defeat in, and it does give back swaths of territory that it had occupied in Ukraine, it doesn't mean that that military threat is, is over. Um, there's a possibility it changes, but the probability of that, I wouldn't put high odds on it today. There's a couple of other things that we've got to cover uh, in in roughly the four and a half minutes or so we've got left. But how how do you think we should be thinking about how Russia responds to this? Right, it's a it's a big country. It has a lot of resources. Putin has decided not to mobilize and try to play this as business as usual. Um, you know, the North Koreans are going to be helping, whether through equipment and people. Um, you know, what what's your sense? What should we be prepared to see from the Russians? Because I can't imagine that they're going to be okay with losing this, right? Yeah, um, I would agree. You know, and like I said, maybe there there there's certainly a scenario to entertain that they do lose. That uh, there there's an internal movement that emerges and Putin falls out of a seventh floor window somewhere. Um, you know, you, you, I'd never say never to, to that possibility. Um, I'd watch for, you know, indications. Is this, is, is he really going to have to mobilize? Um, you know, is he really going to have to to be build out his, his military? It's small. It's too small for the task that's been placed upon it. Um, and I suppose that's, that's probably the most interesting question from my standpoint is, you know, will he double down here? Uh, and if he does, you know, then I think we're back into, you know, potentially a multi-year scenario that that's really going to also draw on a, it's going to have to draw on a lot more Western support, you know, not just for the Ukrainian military, but the Ukrainian economy. It, it's fascinating that the World Bank issued this report last week that estimated, I'm, I may get the exact number wrong, but I think it was that Ukraine's going to need about $355 billion in aid for reconstruction and rebuilding, you know, once the war's over. Right. And if I were Russia, you know, that bill to pay is is going to be tattooed on my forehead. So wh why, you know, that's going to be another thing to work through here is who's going to pay for that? And, um, you know, what, what does Ukraine look like? So I'm I'm not ready to say that this thing could be over by Christmas. Um, you know, it, it could continue to drag on for a while. And I think, um, you know, we just kind of have to keep that all in mind. Uh, what, what would change my mind? Sure. You know, uh, unfortunately, in these kind of instances, you're probably going to be working. I'm going to be working more with what I see in a day-to-day -day basis. You know, if, if Ukraine is able to mount an offensive, um, or you just see a wholesale collapse of the Russian military in the south and Kherson, and all of a sudden, you know, Ukraine is knocking on the door of Crimea. Yeah, maybe, maybe I think something different is about to emerge here, but but I'm not willing to call that today. Uh, in the uh, immortal words of Colin Powell, uh, you break it, you own it. Um, yeah. Very quickly, uh, you're still bullish on a uh, on the case for U.S. defense. Walk us through that bullish case. Uh, and then my follow-up is, what should everybody be paying attention to the week ahead? Give us your bullish case. Well, I think, yeah, the bullish case is just, you know, the simple fact that analysts have not increased estimates uh, for 2024-2025 for most of the large U.S. defense contractors, where they have changed them for European contractors. Now, the midterm elections could upend that. You know, we could have a protracted standoff over the FY23 appropriations. 
you know, to the whole discussion we've just had, you know, there there is that outside possibility that there's a dramatic change in Russia and that changes the vector of, of spending. But I look at this as, um, you know, I, I'm just really intrigued why sell-side analysts have not raised their estimates, uh, that their sales estimates that existed prior to the start of the war with Ukraine, when so much has been going on, you know, European defense spending is higher. Um, the FY23 budget did increase investment above and beyond plans. Um, you know, you're going to have probably more spending to aid Ukraine and certainly replace the munitions that were used in the operation and in supporting Ukraine. So that that's why I'm see positive sentiment for for the u.s defense sector um that said i did point out you know there are still risks like everything you know you have to navigate and, and walk through but you know the, the bigger backdrop to me vago is that um while the stocks have outperformed the market uh you know they haven't they haven't gotten the, that next leg they basically move sideways since the start of the war and Usually, you know, when analysts raise estimates, that's also when stocks move higher. So we're we're not an investment broker dealer, so we're not making stock calls per se. But just looking at sentiment and where where uh, analyst estimates are, you know, uh, I'm just intrigued by that observation that Bloomberg consensus sales estimates from major U.S. defense contractors have not moved um, since since the war in Ukraine started. And we've got a minute left. Give us uh, a look at the week ahead in Washington and anywhere else. Um, there are actually a bunch of think tank events. Uh, Chatham House is doing a couple of interesting things, both on Ukraine, on the Russia-China relationship. Um, they're, they're actually, it's more commercial aerospace. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce does an event on uh, the commercial aviation sector, you know, and that has some read-throughs to, to defense. Um, you know, uh, and obviously the war, what goes on the war is going to be going to be the primary uh, driver, I think, of, of expectations for defense this week. The Treasury outlay number should be reported for August. Um, I usually don't pay a lot of attention to that, but on a monthly basis, but it, <clears throat> their outlays have kind of been coming in below uh, the plan that OMB and, and uh, DOD was looking at. So, you know, if the August number is weak, it means there could be a whole lot of scrambling in September, which isn't impossible, but it's just something else to watch too. And I think, you know, these low outlay growth rates have been actually negative growth you've seen in investment outlays, just something that I think, uh, you know, this this outlay number will shine a, a little bit more light on whether or not, you know, we can get to the full year expectation, the full year fiscal expectations, or there's going to be a miss. Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. And look forward to seeing you next week uh, here in uh, DC for this uh, segment on the sidelines of the uh, Air Force Association's annual conference and trade show. Thanks very much. Thank you, Vago.